Pastor Scott introduced me at our um, pastor's conference a few years ago and, and uh, mentioned that my wife had died at birth. So I'm a single guy, in other words. So um, <laughs> since then, I've been afraid to ask Scott to introduce me for anything. So, but uh, uh, I have loved... Um, knowing of this ministry for a number of years now. Um, I uh, uh, have been greatly blessed by my fellowship with, um, with Scott Menez. He was one of my earliest students, and he put up with all my adjusting to learning how to be in a classroom, and um, God has greatly used him, and I'm very grateful to call him as a brother, and I've been especially privilege the last few years to have Jeff in my classes, and uh, uh, great insight, great input, and um, has actually, in, in a very major way, helped improve one of the courses that I teach, uh, and some very, very helpful suggestions as to uh, how to format the class. So I'm, but I'm also grateful to uh, hear the wisdom of his experience, and I've had the privilege of meeting um, your other elders um, the last few weeks, and I've been very impressed with the godly integrity that he's raised up in the group of men that he has uh, uh, called to lead this, this fellowship. And so my prayer for you during this time of transition, there's always challenges, there's always issues during a time of transition, and my prayer for you is that you will honor those whom God has called to lead you. First Thessalonians 5 tells us that we are to esteem our leaders highly for their work's sake and obey those that have the rule over you in Hebrews 13, knowing that they must one day give an account. And there's an interesting imperative there. One is to submit to them, but one of them is to let them make their accounting with joy. That the responsiveness of you folks here uh, to honor the word of God and to follow the word of God and to submit joyfully to the leadership that God has placed here is a key part of that mandate. So that one day when, when these men stand before the Lord and give an account for you, that it would be a cause for great joy for them and not for sorrow. So, as I mentioned, this is a challenging time. Anytime a church enters a, a, a transitional period uh, between, between pastors, there's always a, a, a major vulnerability. I uh, shepherded our church when I was pastoring back in New York through that time of transition. I was the associate pastor, and, and uh, we had a, a period of time that I thought would be about three months, turned into almost two years uh, when we were working through um, finding a new pastor. And there are some very unique challenges that come up. So, so my prayer for you is that God would, would and, uh, keep e each of you in love with Jesus, loving Jesus supremely, and that all of you as a church body would endeavor to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as Paul calls us to in Ephesians 4. I want to take you this morning to a text in 2 Timothy chapter 1. There are some, um, whoops, am I, oh, I moved it around. Can you hear me now? Okay, there we go. I've never been accused of not being heard, so, um, but Mike needs a mic sometimes. So 2 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to read verses 8 through 12, or actually I want to begin at verse 7, which is actually the last verse in the preceding context, but because the word, verse 8 begins with the word therefore, it's necessary to read verse 7, I think, to get the context of what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. And then I want to pause and ask for the Lord's help as we uh, consider his word this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power 
and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word, and these are your people. And I've been privileged and tasked with the responsibility of bringing your word to your people this morning. So I pray for your help. I pray that you would hide me behind your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the primary teacher this morning. And I pray that you would use your word to build up your people with this call to courage that we find in this passage. And I ask for your help in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, recent circumstances took me back, uh, has taken me back to this passage uh, that I preached from about 23 years ago. And um, it's been, uh, it was interesting that in many ways at the time, the Lord was using this passage in my life to prepare me for calls to courage in my own experience. A number of issues that, that came up, in fact, last night was, as I was reviewing this before I went to bed, the Lord took me back about 18 or 19 years ago when I was a very young man, still not in the pastorate, and having to take a stand against my best friend in a church discipline situation. And I remember agonizing at the time over my own struggle with courage. Fear of man looming very, very large in my thinking, and it is, it is still a struggle for me. This is, this is something that the Lord confronted me with and something that is a perpetual challenge for me. So at the time, I remember asking the Lord, I know there is a call to courage, but where do I go to find it? Where do I go to find courage? And this passage is part of the answer that God gave me in answer to that question, which is why I want to bring it to you this morning. A number of years ago, I heard D. James Kennedy, this is quite a number of years ago now, because it was a few years before I put these notes together for the first time. I heard D. James Kennedy tell a story of a situation in Russia under the form, uh, when the uh, Soviet Union was still uh, an entity of a group of soldiers who broke in on a um, service where Christians were gathered together worshiping. They had a, a number of guns and masks, and they said uh, to everybody that was gathered there, they gave an ultimatum. Anyone who did not renounce Christ and leave within 10 minutes would be executed. And there was a tension, great tension in the room as the minutes ticked by, and one by one, a number of people left the room until finally, there was a group of people left who braced themselves for the inevitable step into eternity that they would face. 
And when the others had left, the soldiers took off their masks and laid down their machine guns and said, we're Christians from the church in the next city. Now that we've gotten rid of the hypocrites, let's go ahead and worship together. (laughs) And I remember at the time asking myself, which group would I have been in? You know, there's a part of me that knows me very, very well enough to think that I could have easily been in that group who left. And this is why I find this passage so significant for me, because of the circumstances that led Paul to write these words. And I want to take a little bit of, uh, a few minutes here to set the context for what we're going to be looking at this morning, because Paul writes these words to Timothy. Timothy had been an associate of the Apostle Paul for a number of years. He began serving with Paul uh, when he was probably still a teenager, when he began traveling with Paul. He had been associated with Paul for uh, a decade and a half by the time that Paul writes 2 Timothy. Um, so Timothy had, had long been associated with the Apostle Paul, but he was still, even at this juncture, a very young man. He was probably in his mid-30s when he receives this epistle from Paul. Paul writes this epistle to Timothy when he is pastoring the church at Ephesus. Now there's a significance to the connection here because a number of years earlier, about seven years earlier, give or take a year or two, Paul had met with the elders of the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was the church that Paul had spent more time at than any of the other churches that Paul had ministered to. And Paul, at that time that he met with them, was on his way to Jerusalem, and he did not know exactly what was to happen to him there, except that he had been warned by the Holy Holy Spirit that imprisonment and suffering awaited him. Other believers were also aware of this through the Spirit, and because of that, tried to dissuade Paul from going. Don't go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you there. But Paul knew that that was what was in his future. And so he meets with the elders of the church at Ephesus for what he thinks will be the one, the last time that he will be able to see with, to, to meet with them. In God's providence and in his mercy, he allowed Paul one opportunity between Roman imprisonments, an additional opportunity later to meet with the church at Ephesus, which was the time that he left Timothy in charge of the ministry there in his absence. But in Acts chapter 20, you will read the account of Paul's words to the elders of the church at Ephesus in which he recounts the fact that with tears and with with laboring and with patience over the course of three years, he did not shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. And he tells them in that context to feed the church of God, which Jesus has purchased with his own blood, because Paul knows, and this is setting us up for the current context in 2 Timothy, Paul knows that after his departure, savage wolves will come in and distort the flock, and even from within you, there would be false teachers that would arise. And seven years later, that has happened. In fact, that it was already happening when Paul wrote 1 Timothy earlier. And Paul had left Timothy at the church at Ephesus because apparently some among their number had bought into the false teaching. And so Paul leaves Timothy there to instruct and to teach the word of God and to, to confront some very, very determined false teachers. Timothy, a very young man at this point, likely having to confront people who are older than he is. And so Paul, in his first epistle to Timothy, reminds Timothy, let no man despise your youth, but you be an example of the believers. And even use a little wine for your stomach's sake, because Paul or Timothy had come to the point where the challenges of all of this had so 
internally traumatized Timothy that, that it was affecting even his, his physical health. And you see indications like this to find that Timothy was not, uh, Timothy was a very timid person by nature. But one of the marks of courage, I think, is that someone who is very, very timid by nature is put into a position where they have to do the right thing even when they're terrified of doing the right thing. And they do the right thing. That is true courage. And Timothy, one of the reasons why he is one of my heroes in the scripture is that over and over and over again, Timothy demonstrated this. But Paul recognized the fact that Timothy was not this by nature. And so in this text, we have the words, don't be ashamed. In fact, this in verse 8 is the first of four occurrences of that expression within this epistle to 2 Timothy. And the wording in, in verse 8 in particular is not to suggest that Timothy had become ashamed. The Greek text actually points to the fact that Paul is trying to urge Timothy not to become ashamed. It isn't dealing with a problem Timothy had already exhibited. It was dealing with a danger that Paul recognized that Timothy could fall into. Not ashamed. Not ashamed. You see it in verse 8, verse 12, and verse 16 of chapter 1. And again, in a passage that we all know in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, which actually connects with one of the points I want to make a little bit later, where Paul says that we are to be diligent to show ourselves approved unto God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. So you have three, three of those occurrences here in chapter one, the fourth one in chapter two, suggesting that Paul is constantly going back to Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Don't, don't hold back because of the circumstances in which I find myself now. When we come to the writing of this epistle, 2 Timothy, which is widely recognized by interpreters as Paul's swan song epistle, the circumstances have, if anything, intensified since the circumstances where Paul had met with the church at Ephesus back uh, about seven or eight years earlier. He had, as had been predicted, he was arrested and he, he spent two years in prison in Caesarea and then two years in Rome awaiting uh, his appearance before Nero, who was at that point and still even at this point, the emperor of Rome. Paul expected that as a result of his, his imprisonment, both in, in Caesarea Philippi and in Rome, that he would be exonerated, which indeed he was. And he was released from that first Roman imprisonment, and I believe after that point ha had the privilege of going even as far away as Spain. That's where he had intended to go and wanted to go, and I think God gave him the ability to go. So Paul was out of the area. He was ministering in Spain when the fire at Rome occurred in the year 64, which was the pretext that Nero used to declare Christianity an illegal religion. Peter had been arrested and probably by this point had already been executed by the time Paul writes 2 Timothy. Paul was now viewed as an enemy of the state. And there was all the opprobrium, if that's the right way to pronounce that word, that goes along with that, that was impacting or potentially impacting Timothy. So on the one hand, he had false teachers who were, who were very, very strenuous in their teaching of, of false doctrine. Peter, Paul had already had to discipline a couple of them, Hymenaeus and Alexander uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, but Hymenaeus at least was still very active because Paul brings him up again in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. 
and identifies the nature of their false teaching. He said that they were saying that the resurrection had already passed. They were guilty of teaching what I call overrealized eschatology, which is another sermon. That's another dissertation. Um, but they were teaching that the present had, the future had already happened. They were denying the second coming of Jesus and all the implications connected with that. So on the one hand, Timothy had very determined false teachers that he was dealing with. On the other hand, you had the state that had taken the position against the church. And I think we can see the parallel with the circumstances that we're facing. The church of Jesus Christ as a whole is enduring great onslaught of false teaching coming in all sorts of different shapes and sizes and forms. And we're also in a culture that up until recently has been very, very affirming of Christianity, but has become increasingly hostile toward Christianity. And we see the, circum we see the change in circumstances. Our nation's president recently made the statement, uh, words to the effect that gay rights are, are as important or even more important than religious freedom which is a claim that is as perverse constitutionally as it is morally. But these are the circumstances in which we find ourselves, and so we have to ask ourselves this question, are we going to have the courage to stand with Jesus or not? And I have to ask myself that question. Because I know, and I, and I am humbled and actually concerned when I read passages like in Revelation chapter 21 verse 8 that gives the list of people that will inhabit the lake of fire. And you know who's at the head of that list? It isn't the adulterers, it isn't the fornicators, it isn't all the other things. It's the cowards that are at the head of that list in Revelation 21.8. And I read that and I cringe because I know what I am by nature. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is something I need to preach to myself. Where do I go to find the courage when I need it? And I think there are four sources that I want to bring to you this morning. And three of the passages we're going to be looking at are actually outside of 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 identifies the fourth one. But two of the three I find corroborated in 2 Timothy chapter 1. So I want to take a few minutes and take us to Joshua chapter 1. Because there are uh, two of the sources that uh, I find for courage are found in Joshua chapter 1. So I'm going to go to that passage first. And I want to uh, set this up for you by stating that in many ways, Joshua, meaning the person Joshua at this point, was the Old Testament counterpart to Timothy. Some of the first words in the book of Joshua is, Moses, my servant, is what? Is dead. Joshua chapter 1, I think it's verse 2. This is what God is saying to Joshua. Paul, in 2 Timothy, said, I've finished the course. I'm now ready to be offered. I know that it's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give not only to me, but also to all those who on that day have loved his appearing. Paul recognized that his course, that he was finishing his course and he was ready to hand on the baton to Timothy. Can you imagine what it would be like to follow the Apostle Paul? That's a little bit intimidating. Can you imagine what it was like for Joshua? A Joshua who, by the way, had exhibited great courage earlier. He was one of only two of the spies who said, you know, we know the circumstances are dawning, but let's press ahead anyway because God's given us the victory. And they were shouted down by everybody else. And the result was 40 years in the wilderness. And now even Moses, the great leader, uh, had now died. And Joshua was the one who was tasked with the responsibility of leading 
God's people into the land that had been promised to them. Very daunting task. And Joshua must have felt like Timothy did. Who, who is sufficient for these things? How in the world can I step into this? And so when we come down through, and, and, and again, we're only going to be able to, to do a, a brief overview because there are, this passage, like 2 Timothy chapter 1, is packed with, with terms and words and concepts and ideas that bears a lot of unpacking. There's a lot more here than we're going to be able to talk about. But let me look at, look with me at verse 6 of Joshua chapter 1. I want, I want you to see this. Be strong and courageous. Look at verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. Verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do you get the impression that there's a certain theme that pulls this whole section together? One of the things we talk about in hermeneutics that we want to be looking at when we're looking at scripture is look at things that are repeated. And when you have the same charge repeated three times in four verses, there's something to the fact that this is a theme that pulls us together. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. I know that Moses is dead. This great leader has finished the course and you're commanded to take up the charge. So be strong, Joshua, and be courageous. And I read words like that, and I'm like, I resonate with the need to be that, but how, where do I find the courage? And God in his mercy gives us two sources for this in this text. I want to back up to verse 6 of Joshua chapter 1. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause his people to inherit the land uh, that I swore to their fathers to give them, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that, uh, uh, to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Source number one for courage is the word of God itself. The word of God itself. Scripture is the first source that God gives to us for courage. Consider the sufficiency of God's word. We see it twice, verse 7, that you uh, walk according to all the law that God had given. Do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn to it for, to the interesting language here. Don't turn to it to the right hand or to the left. There are different ways of departing from the word of God. One is by turning away from it on this side. One is by turning away from it on the other side. If we can put other biblical terminology to it, you can depart from the word of God by adding to it. And you can depart from the word of God by subtracting from it. And so you have a number of commands and a number of warnings. Some of those you've already seen if, you've been, if you were reading through the book of Deuteronomy. Two of these warnings are in the book of Deuteronomy itself against adding to the word of God. Revelation chapter 22 ends with a command against, a warning against both adding to the word of God and taking away from the word of God. But notice that you can swing off to the left or swing off to the right, but either way, the word of God is abandoned at that point. So Joshua is urged at the very, very beginning, you model your life, you model your ministry, you model everything that God has called you to on the word of God itself. The word of God is supreme. And this is why it's so important. It's interesting, in the King James Version of Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, that very last word for then thou shalt have good success is the only time that the word success appears in the King James Bible. Now the Hebrew term that's used here appears in a number of other contexts 
in the scripture. But I find it rather interesting that success seminars don't really particularly mention this. <laughs> Psalm 1 is a parallel passage that uses different terminology, but the same idea is there. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. For he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does will prosper. But notice there are preconditions to that. The preconditions to that is that we are saturated in the word of God itself. Because when we have access to the word of God, and there are huge numbers of implications of what it means to be connected into the word of God, but one of those implications is, is that we have access to information that far exceeds our wisdom. We know that the Bible as the word of God is the word of truth. It is utterly and absolutely inerrant. I can be wrong, but the word of God can never be, will never be, and has never been wrong. And so when I build my life and my ministry and everything that I live and everything that I practice and seek to conform it to the word of God, that gives me courage. Because it is the word of God that brings that, it is the word of God that gives that to us. And so if we... Uh, so if we can move ahead, it's interesting. In, in 1 Corinthians 4, for example, Paul says, it's required of stewards that a man be found, anybody remember the next word? Verse 2, required of stewards that a man be found faithful. But how is faithfulness determined? Verse 3, it's not determined by what other people think about your ministry. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 4, it's not even determined by what you think about your ministry. Paul says, my conscience is clear, verse 4, but that does not justify me. So what's the standard? What's the standard? Well, the standard is not impugning other people's motives, because those are things that... that um, will not even be revealed until the time that Jesus comes. That's why others and you are not the standard of faithfulness to your own ministry. But verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, I want you to have learned in Apollos and us this, the truth of this saying, not beyond what has been written. It's the word of God that determines the standard of faithfulness. And when I live my life and care, conduct my ministry and carry on my ministry in keeping with what the word of God teaches, that gives me courage. That gives me the courage that I need. And so we move ahead now to 1,500 years to the passing of another warrior, the Apostle Paul. We see the same thing. Paul was soon to be beheaded for the sake of the gospel. It was not a popular thing to be a preacher of the gospel in those days. Indeed, later on in the text in 2 Timothy chapter 1, we'll find that Others had already been ashamed of Paul. He names two of them, Onesiphorus and, um, forget the other guy's name. Um, uh, but Onesiphorus in, 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 in verse 15 of uh, 2 Timothy, it's still in Joshua 1, so um, my mind's all over the place. But there were two people that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 1.15 who were ashamed. Later on in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he'll make reference to the, his first appearance before Nero, and no one stood with him. There were plenty of people who had come to the point of being ashamed of Paul, and Timothy was in danger of that. So Paul says to Timothy here in this text, guess what? You're taking my place, not as an apostle, but as one who is a preacher of the gospel. You will be suffering the same persecutions that I am as a preacher. He's going to bring this up later in 2 Timothy 3.12. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You who are timid are going to have to stand firm for the truth. Where are you going to find the courage to do that? The same place that Joshua found it, the word of God. And this is the part where this verse, these two verses that we're looking at in Joshua chapter one are corroborated by so much of what we see in 2 Timothy. Let me just give you a quick 
uh, summary here. Timothy is commanded to hold fast to the scriptures in the verses immediately following the ones we're looking at this morning in verses 13 and 14. He's commanded, and this is where it's significant, he's commanded to diligently handle them. I hope you didn't miss the parallel with 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to show yourselves approved unto God. As a workman who does not need to be ashamed, where does that not ashamedness come from? Where does that courage come from? Rightly dividing the word of truth. And the word rightly dividing in Greek literally has the idea of cutting along a straight line, which means you don't cut off to the right or you don't cut off to the left. It's a, it's a word picture that Paul uses that has the same idea that we see here in Joshua chapter 1 verse 7 against departing from the word of God either on one side or on the other side. So part of our charge, part of our responsibility, and particularly those of us who are called to lead and to preach and to teach and to shepherd in the body of Christ, our charge is to build our lives and our ministries firmly and steadfastly on the word of God itself. And there are huge benefits of that. Beyond even what we're talking about this morning, but one of the benefits of that is that it gives us the courage. It gives us the courage that we need to do what God has called us to do. And Paul doesn't even stop at 2 Timothy 2.15. As you move on through, you have the great statement of Scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, in the context of we use the Word of God as the only inspired antidote to apostasy, Ending with chapter 4 and verse 2, Timothy, you preach the word. When there are so many challenges and so many influences for you to preach other things, Timothy, you preach the word. So number one, the word of God is the first divinely ordained source of courage. And, and again, I'm, I'm selecting four this morning. I'm sure that if I had time to do all the occurrences of fear not in scripture, I could find more than four, but I want to focus in on these four. Number one, it comes from the word of God. Number two, number two, courage comes from a recognition that God is with you. We move from the word of God to the presence of God. Or if we can put it in another term, we move from the revelation of God, what he says, to who he is and his very person. Look at verse 9 of Joshua chapter 1. With this third statement of, don't be ashamed, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed. And I love these words, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Yeah, Timothy or Joshua is not sufficient for these things on his own. But God is with him. You know, and that great man that Joshua had just replaced, Moses, remember when God appeared to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3? And God says, I have heard the cries of my people Israel and I have come down to help them. So you go. And Moses, like, who, me? You know, Moses, in his own way, was in exactly the same position 40 years earlier as Joshua had been. And I got to go talk to Pharaoh? And I got to tell Pharaoh to let my, you know, I can't talk. You know, Moses goes through all of his excuses. And one of the things that God reminded Moses of, and you can find this in Exodus 3, is I'm going to be with you. Number of other texts, and I'm just going to be able to cite these. Um, but uh, look at, um, uh, yeah, certainly I will be with you. Exodus three twelve is what God had said to Moses. Uh, uh, Psalm twenty seven one, the Lord twenty seven verse one, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? I love these words in, Ex in Romans chapter 8 when Paul has talked about, in fact, there's a lot of parallels between Romans 8 and 2 Timothy 1 of things that I see here where Paul 
after he made the statement that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to whose purpose for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and whom he predestined, he called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things if God be for us? Who can be against us? And Paul goes on, and it's an amazing text in Romans chapter 8, but he goes on through that text and he ends with a statement that I am persuaded that nothing in heaven, hell, or earth will ever be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he goes through a whole list of things that could be thought to separate us from God, and nothing's going to do it because God is going to be with us. And that is something that any time that we're called upon to act in a courageous way, whether it's through preaching, whether it's in decisions, whether it's in living our lives as believers, we need to remember that when we make those decisions in light of the word of God and what the word of God teaches and what the word of God communicates, we also have in addition to the truth of the word of God behind us, we also have God saying, I'm with you. I will be with you. So it doesn't matter whether you are Moses wondering how in the world am I going to take this to the people of, uh, to Pharaoh and uh, to tell him to let my people go. God says, I will be with you. It doesn't matter if you're Joshua having to fill the big shoes or sandals, as it were, of, of Moses. I'm going to be with you. Elisha begs for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, because he's having to replace Elijah, and he's given the same reminder. I was reminded of this also, Judges 6, when God calls Gideon and tells Gideon basically to go up against the, the Midianites and the Philistines. Gideon's reminded, I will be with you. As I was thinking back over my own circumstances almost 20 years ago, relating to that first traumatic church discipline situation. And I had, I had taught on church discipline. I taught on Matthew 18. I wrote my master's thesis on Matthew 18 and related passages. So I was the expert. And then I was put into a position where I actually had to live it out. And it was terrifying. And the Lord reminded me of Matthew 18.20, a verse that we often take out of context where two or three are gathered together in my name, which is often used to justify low attendance at prayer meetings. It has nothing to do with that. Who are the two or three of Matthew 18.20? Remember the second step of Matthew 18? Take with you one or two others. One plus one or two others equals two or three. It's people who have been charged with the necessary but painfully difficult circumstances relating to church discipline. But you have this promise where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Jesus promises to be present when we're called upon to exercise courage. And it's so difficult to do. We need to remember the word of God. We need to remember the presence of God. That he is with us. That he has promised to never leave us. Nor to forsake us. That when we're in those, the middle of those seemingly impossible and painful circumstances. That we are reminded that Jesus is right there with us. And of course he's. He's with us anytime, anywhere, but there is a certain context in which his presence becomes all the more evident when you are aware that he's there. I think of Stephen. This is a slightly different analogy, but Stephen, when he is about ready to be stoned and, and he knows that his death is imminent and he looks and he sees Jesus standing by the right hand of the throne of God. Interestingly, the only reference in the New Testament to Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
It's almost like the circumstances in which Stephen finds himself are of such a nature that it's pulling Jesus right out of his throne. And is the edge of the parapets of heaven looking over, intensely involved, significantly interested, and ready to welcome Stephen home. Because Jesus is with you, even in the ultimate display. And that's what we have to remember. We, th- these are the things I have to preach to myself. These are the things we have to preach to ourselves when we're struggling with courage. Number one, it comes from the word of God. Number two, it comes from a knowledge and an awareness of the presence of God. And of course, if we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 1 briefly, it's very, and I didn't see this before last night, But it's interesting when I compare this promise in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9 with the fundamental God-centeredness of the verses that we read earlier in 2 Timothy 1. Let me just highlight these for you again. Don't be ashamed about the testimony about our Lord, but we share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Um, It's been now manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, And I'm not ashamed, verse 12, because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard, not me, he is able to guard against that day, until that day. It's all God. It's all what God does. Not only in being with us, but in sustaining us. And this is what Paul is using to build up Timothy's courage with God is with you, even when you don't want to do, and when all your personal inclinations are to run the other way, God has promised to be with us. Number three, third source of courage. This is a passage that really resonated with me at the time. Second, uh, Proverbs 28 and verse 1. Proverbs 28 and verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues. This is the paranoia aspect. These are people who are running even when nobody's out to get them because their conscience is active. But the righteous, the end of verse one, are as bold as a lion. The third source of courage is knowing that you're standing for what's right knowing that you're righteous. And again, there is a very wrong way to take this. There's an arrogant self-righteousness that some people will appeal to. That's not what's in view here. But there is, there is a power and a boldness that comes from knowing. Because of number one and number two, because you've submitted this to the word of God, because God has given his promise to be with you of knowing that you're on the right side. Timothy could know that because of what he was preaching and his faithfulness to the word of God. Knowing that the battle that you face is the right battle. So there's a, there's, there is an emboldening, there is a courage that comes from knowing that the battle that you fight and the issues that you face are correct. Of course, this demands two things. First of all, you better make sure that you're on the right side of Scripture. This presupposes that first point, that you have submitted your thinking and your actions and everything to what the Word of God says. And one thing I've been impressed with Scott and Jeff And the other men that I have met with is they're wrestling through scripture and they're iron sharpening when it comes to what does the scripture look like? How does the scripture apply to this particular dynamic that we're dealing with? And there's a certain boldness and freedom and courage that comes at the the back end of that when you realize I'm on God's side in this point. Not that God is on my side, you know, which is sometimes the way we like to begin. No, we need to make sure we're on his side. But when we have worked through the scripture and realized what the word of God says to this, 
that gives us great freedom. So the scripture de- defines the battle we face. It also defines the way in which we fight the battle. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual and mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. There are some people who by constitution are a bull in the, in the china shop. And they just like to fight. Doesn't matter what the fight is about. They just like to fight. But when a gentle, kind man fights, people take notice because it, among other things, communicates weight to the issue they're fighting for. It's why Paul says to Timothy later that he's to be patient, even gentle, when he's dealing with those who are ensnared in false teaching, lest peradventure maybe God may grant them repentance leading to the acknowledgement of the truth and recover themselves from the snare of Satan who has taken them captive to do his will. And there is that amazing balance of boldness and patience and one without the other ends up presenting a caricature. Uh, the, the man of God needs to be bold, but also patient and gentle. But some of that boldness comes from knowing that you're, you're not only on the right side scripturally, but, but that you have sought scripture's guidance and directives in how to conduct yourselves. And then number four, and this is where I want us to spend a few minutes back in 2 Timothy 1 because this is the, this is the one that Paul explicitly comes up with. Uh, and I would just put it this way. The gospel. The gospel is the source for courage. And you have packed into these next verses some and you know, and you have this in different places in Paul's epistles and elsewhere in the New Testament, where you have Paul compacting in a short number of verses huge amounts of biblical truth. And when I remember when I preached this uh, a number of years ago, when I was in seminary, actually, I think I spent four weeks just on these next verses. I don't really have that privilege this morning. So all I want to do is give you a couple of highlights and look at verse. Um, Uh, Look at the focus on the gospel. You have the suffering for the gospel in verse 8. And you have a definition of that. Um, But look at what what I want to highlight here. And this is, um, and maybe I'll just frame it this way. There is a past tense, there is a present tense, and there is a future tense to the gospel in these verses. Maybe that's the best way I can think of to try to summarize what I see here where Paul reminds us that this gospel that Timothy is preaching began in eternity past long before any of us ever existed. This gospel, verse 9, verse 8, the end of verse 8, which comes by the power of God, this is what he did. He saved us and he called us to a holy calling. Negatively, it was not because of our works, which is just what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and other texts like that say, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Our salvation didn't come from anything we did and it's a, it's a real good thing it didn't um, because we would never be able to attain it. There's all the theology of Romans that's packed in to this one expression. He saved us not because of our works, but because of his purpose and his grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the world, the ages began. My salvation was settled before the world began. And nothing can thwart it. That's the beauty of it. And you have even the verb to save appears in the New Testament in three tenses. We have been saved. This is one of the examples of the past tense of the verb. We are being saved. That's 1 Corinthians 1.18. Uh, the, the preaching of the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But there's also a sense in which our salvation is still future. 
The day of our salvation, Romans 13, 11, is nearer than when we first believed. And we as believers right now are caught in that very difficult intervening period where we look back to our salvation as already having been wrought, but looking ahead to the fact that it has yet to be completed. But we have reminders over and over and over again in Scripture that the work, the saving work that God has begun, he will complete. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. We've already referenced Romans 8. It's good to remind us that, of that unbroken chain that begins with predestination and calling but ends with glorification. Nobody's lost. I praise God that I don't have to be here as an Arminian today. That I don't have to sing hymns like, if we all get to heaven. Or every other day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Or blessed assurance, Jesus was mine. I lost my salvation for the 95th time. I don't have to sing any of those. <laughs> that my hope and my confidence is in the fact that the salvation that I have experienced and that you have experienced come from the fact that the work that God has begun in us will be powerfully and effectively accomplished. And Paul begins with a reminder of what God had done in the past. He saved us, he called us according to his own purpose and grace. It's now been manifested, verse 10, through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. This is when Jesus came at a point in time, when the fullness of the time came, Galatians 4. God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. He abolished death. What's our greatest enemy? Death. Jesus abolished it. For somebody who's wrestling with courage, that's a great reminder. What's the worst they can do to me? Kill me. But then I get to go to be with a Savior who abolished death. And that's why believers over and over through the ages when they face the ultimate have been able to rest in the confidence even Paul himself, later on in this epistle, will talk about the fact that everything that's happened to him have, have, have happened to his deliverance, Romans, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 18, I think it is. Deliverance, Paul, you're about ready to get chopped. Yes, because for believers, death has been transformed by Jesus, who conquered death in his resurrection and has become the first fruits in his resurrection of our resurrection when one day we're raised from the grave and never again to die. But even in the meantime, absent from the body, present with the Lord. <laughs> that gives courage. Just to think about the gospel as Jesus displaying victory over Satan, the power of Satan, and even over death. He abolished death, and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And for this, Paul says, to this, I was appointed as a preacher and as an apostle and as, an, as a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But then I love verse 12, the end of verse 12. But I am not ashamed, second occurrence of that phrase that we have, second occurrence. Why am I not ashamed? Because I know whom I have believed. There's a hymn that we sometimes sing that comes right out of this text. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I remember singing that hymn before I realized that was a verse in scripture. A powerful statement. I know whom I have believed. My trust, my confidence is ultimately in a person. The person of Jesus Christ who is the one who brought about all of this salvation. I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And, look, and this is where we get to the future. I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Yeah, we've been saved from we have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's justification. We are right now being saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification. But praise God, one day I will be saved from the very presence of sin. And even the possibility of sin. That's glorification. 
And even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But that simply completes the salvation that has already begun in us. And when I recognize the power of the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel, that gives me courage. And that is the one item that Paul picks up on here in 2 Timothy 1. So where do I go to find courage? The word of God, the presence of God, the recognition that I know I'm doing the right thing, and the very gospel of God itself. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to be faithful. Lord, this passage gives us a call to courage. And I realize, even in returning to it this morning, how desperately I need these words. And I pray on behalf of all of us here that you would give us the power of your word, the power of your presence, the confidence that Paul exhibited of knowing that he was on the right side, and even the recognition of the power of the gospel that you who have begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. We ask for your help in Jesus' precious name. Amen.